It's Sunday, June 16th. I'm Mercedes Stevenson, and you're listening to the West Block Podcast. Here are the top headlines making news on the show this week. We will not be accepting amendments that weaken the rules. When will he realize that his policies are phasing out the energy sector and all the jobs that go with it? They want to replace environmental review with pipeline approval process. The minister called the new NAFTA a win-win-win. Canada did its job. We negotiated a great deal for Canadian workers. There has been no political interference. Her case is now before courts. Ms. Mung has excellent lawyers. News and information that's shared within peer groups tends to be more impactful. We tend to believe it a little bit more. It's worrying. We're starting to think about what those norms and standards should be with regards to the online environment as well. We are just days away from a cabinet decision on whether the Trans Mountain Pipeline will be built. Meanwhile, the Liberal government, the Senate and Conservative premiers have been locked in a battle over resource development on Bill C-69. The Senate sent back 188 amendments to the government after conducting cross-Canada consultations. Environment Minister Catherine McKenna rejected a number of those amendments, saying Conservative senators simply copied and pasted them from oil lobbyists. Meanwhile, the industry says the controversial environmental assessment bill will kill oil and gas in Canada. Will the government pass this bill before the House rises on Friday? Joining me now is Federal Environment Minister Catherine McKenna. Welcome to the show, Minister. Great to be on the show. You've got a big announcement coming up this week. Trans Mountain expected in just a couple of days. There's been a number of delays in making a cabinet decision. Are you going to meet the deadline and make that decision this week? Uh, well, we've always said that the only way the uh, 20 of the Trans Mountain Pipeline will go ahead if it's done in the right way. There's been a lot of hard work doing Indigenous consultation, also um, making sure we're doing right by the environment. And so, um, you know, we're moving forward uh, in terms of, uh, I think, being in a position to make an announcement. But we've always said it has to be done in the right way. And you might have seen that we've announced better rules for major projects, which is related, because I think what the Trans Mountain expansion showed is how challenging under the Stephen Harper system, um, uh, where rules were gutted for environmental assessments, that you were running into challenges in terms of properly consulting and accommodating Indigenous peoples, also making sure that you had the trust of the public and making sure you were doing right by the environment. So we need to get this right. Major projects um, have to have the trust of the public in terms of how we assess them. So, but anyway, uh, there's no decision yet, um, but just stay tuned. Expected this week, though? Uh, well, there's a deadline, and so uh, stay tuned. The goal is we have been working very hard we'll on this. see if you meet it. Okay, well, speaking of C-69, uh, you had a tremendous number of amendments to work through, and you accepted some very substantial ones on that, on clarifying the process. You also rejected some very substantial ones, ones that were recommended by Conservative senators, by premiers who are not happy by this. Uh, and they're saying, look, if you don't accept these amendments, you're going to kill the oil and gas industry in Canada. What do you say to them? So, I mean, so first of all, we had always said we're willing to look at amendments that made a better bill. And what, is, what are better rules for, for how you review major projects? That we make sure we have the trust of Canadians, that we're protecting the environment, that Indigenous peoples, you're meeting your constitutional requirement. Uh, to, to consult with Indigenous peoples, and good projects go ahead. Um, and so we looked at amendments that would do that. 
But you know, conservative politicians were pushing amendments that would not consider climate change, that would not uh, would limit public consultation, um, that would make it optional to consult with indigenous peoples, even though that's a, it's required by the constitution. It's as if they want to go back to the time of Stephen Harper, where good projects couldn't go ahead in a timely way. So, look, we need to get this right. Um, it's really important that we have a process where we can take advantage. There's a $500 billion opportunity in our resource sector. We were really happy to see the Mining Association um, support uh, the amendments, support uh, the better rules that but we the, have. The, the oil industry has come out, and so has Jack Mintz, who's an economist at the University of Calgary, Goldie Hyder, who's on the show right after you, who is with uh, the Business Council of Canada, and they're saying this could be the death now for the industry, that the amendments that were refused are key to making sure the industry sees more investment and is able to survive. Uh, look, that's just absurd. Um, I think people are learning the wrong lessons from the Trans Mountain expansion. Right now we're in the situation we're in because that was a process under Stephen Harper where rules were gutted when it came to environmental, looking at environmental considerations, when it came to properly consulting with Indigenous peoples, and as a result, good projects couldn't go ahead. But we were always clear. We're not here. This isn't a pipeline approval process, and this is what Andrew Scheer wants. He wants, instead of it being but an environmental this isn't assessment Andrew process, Scheer. this is industry groups, this is economists, this is business councils saying there are serious problems with this bill the way that it is. But the majority, as I say, majority of projects are, are mining projects. We've worked with them on amendments. Um, we also have the support of the Assembly of First Nations. Um, but look, what do Canadians expect? They expect that when you look at major projects, you're going to consider the impacts on the environment. You're going to consider the, imp the impacts on Indigenous peoples and meet your constitutional requirement. And good projects will go ahead in a timely fashion. That's what we've designed. So you don't believe that this will kill the oil and gas industry? That is totally absurd. Um, but what we are not going to do, and, and Andrew Scheer, he, you know, he had secret meetings with the head of the Canadian Association of Petroleum Producers and his campaign chair to talk about how they could well, win the I, next fairness, election. In fairness, I don't think that you guys make all of your meetings public either, but I just want to change gears because we do have to get to the carbon tax still. Um, big project for your government. You mm -hmm. announced this week that you're going to be imposing it in Alberta on January 1st. Why wait until after the election? Uh, well, we have to do it right. We've always said that there has to be a price on pollution. It can't be free to pollute. Alberta has to be part of the National Climate Plan. Um, Alberta has the highest emissions in the country. But we need to do it in the right way, and we need to do some analysis. But we've been clear we're moving forward on this. And actually, really interestingly today, the Pope announced with major energy companies at the Vatican their support for carbon pricing. So you now have the major energy companies like Shell saying we need to put a price on pollution. You have major uh, asset managers like BlackRock, businesses, um, insurance companies who see the risk. So it's not just, you know, our government that's doing this, it's governments mm -hmm. around the world that are putting a price well, on but pollution. If you, if you take that argument too, and, and you've said it's one of the most economically efficient ways there is to control the carbon footprint, the parliamentary budget officer came out this week and said you're not going to meet your Paris targets unless you significantly increase the carbon tax. So why not do that? Why introduce a carbon tax if it's not going to get you to the Paris targets? Look, we've, we've always said they can't be free to pollute, and that's part of any credible climate plan. But everything we do is in the prism of, yeah, we've got to tackle carbon pollution, but we also have to do it in a way that's affordable um, and that grows the economy.
We've created a million jobs, lowest unemployment rate in four decades. We've got a price on pollution. We're giving money back to people. But we're doing a whole range of other measures because it, we're not just going to do a price on pollution. And so if you look at how we're going to meet our target, we've been 100 percent clear that we're committed to that. And we all know that the world needs to do more. Um, we are phasing out coal. We're investing in renewables. Um, we're investing in energy efficiency and clean innovations. And just this week, we announced we're, we're tackling plastic pollution. We're also doubling nature. We're doing more tree planting. We're incentives for electric vehicles. That's our plan to meet our target. Lots of plans, and I'm sure we'll hear more about this in the coming election. That's all the time we yeah. have for today, but thank you so much for joining us. Great to be on the show. The Prime Minister heads to Washington on Thursday to meet President Trump. Ratification of the new NAFTA agreement and how to handle China are both top of the agenda. Democrats in Congress want changes to NAFTA 2.0 before they will sign on. And Canada needs President Trump to push China in a key meeting where he could raise the case of two Canadians who have been detained by Beijing for months. What can Canada expect from the White House? Joining me now is Goldie Hyder. Goldie is the president and CEO of the Business Council of Canada. Welcome back, Goldie. Good to be here. Happy Father's Day to all the dads out there. Absolutely. And to you. Thank you. Uh, just before Father's Day, you were down earlier uh, last week, Thursday, I believe, in Washington, D.C. You were meeting with some of the key people on the NAFTA file, including Congress people and business people. What are you hearing from them about the chances of this being passed? Well, I, I, honestly, it's, 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 I think it's a good chance that things will get there. The question is when and how. And we spent most of our time meeting with the Democratic side uh, of Congress to get an understanding uh, of, of what are the issues that they're raising. Are any of those issues about Canada? Are they more about Mexico? What is the process through which that they're able to move that forward? And most importantly, wanted to share with them our timing issues. Given that Canada's heading into a federal election in October and the government's desire to run parallel the process of, of approval, we want to make sure that the American side understood that while we respect your process, respect the fact that you have an independent exercise underway, wanted you to be aware that in Canada we have an election and we want to make sure that this doesn't either get up get caught up in the politics of that election or worse it risks the fact that after the fact we might have to open the deal up or, or do something that no, none of us want to see happen let's get it done Mexico's going to get it done as early as, as this week uh, why don't we follow suit in, in, in similar fashion uh, perhaps a, a session did of parliament in summer but but let's get it done sooner rather than later did you get a sense that that message had any traction uh, look, as I said, we wanted to respect the process, uh, what's taking place there. They're going to be having a summer recess, uh, sort of the month of August. Uh, we're going to be into an election in early early September. Uh, many of the issues that they raised, we feel, can be managed outside of the agreement itself, perhaps through uh, uh, independent issues that, that they have. Mostly with Mexico is the other thing that I think that came out on the issues of enforcement, on the issues of labor and, uh, and environment. And we in Canada feel that our labor movement is, is, is behind, uh, behind the trade agreement. The Mexicans feel the same way. Uh, we're not sure where the American movement is on this, but perhaps they can talk to each other and see if they can't push that across well, the finish line. Speaking of that labor movement, we had Jerry Dias on the show a couple of weeks ago. Of course, he's the president of Unifor. He's on the NAFTA Advisory Council. He said he doesn't think this deal is going to happen. Do you think it's going to happen? Yeah, I do think it's going to happen. I think the first indication is Speaker Pelosi and uh, Ambassador Lighthouser are working very hard uh, to find the, the, the a means by which to address the issues that are being raised uh, in the 
the Democratic uh, caucus. I think Speaker Pelosi is, uh, should, should never be underestimated. She has a difficult job to do in managing a caucus that's clearly very disparate. But I think the willingness of Ambassador Lighthouser to address the issues that the, at the, that the Democrats in Congress are raising gives me hope. As I said, the issue to me is when. I'm more concerned about when it happens, because if it hits into uh, post-Canadian election or we're into 2020, well, then maybe all bets are off because we're into a very partisan, a hyper-partisan environment. I think there's a general sense that sooner to deal with this in 2019, the better for all sides, because otherwise the alternative is exactly what? Well, that's what everyone's wondering, whether the president might blow up NAFTA completely, which is what he's threatened. The prime minister scheduled to meet yeah. with him uh, on Wednesday. One of the other big topics is going to, of course, be China, because President Trump is going to be meeting with the president of China. No doubt Canada's going to ask him to raise some of the issues we've had, including the two Canadians that have been detained there. There's been a pretty significant effect for some of Canada's agricultural industry as China retaliates through banning certain Canadian imports, like canola. Give us a sense of what the chilled relationship with China has meant for Canadian business. Well, I was on your show talking about this a few months ago, pointing out, uh, you know, if I can say tongue-in-cheek, you know, diplomatic relations are much like a family. You know, mom and dad are going to squabble from time to time, but we're watching the children suffer as a result of it. Whether you're foreign students, whether you're tourists, whether you're business, clearly there is a dampening uh, and there's a chill uh, underway. We don't like that situation. I think we want to be able to continue to have the cultural exchanges, the social exchanges, the students, the visitors, and yes, continue to do business because when all is said and done, this is about Chinese citizens and Canadian citizens and prosperity. We want to grow that middle class. We want to continue the investments. Uh, we, we can, in the short term, manage the situation, but our desire is to see a reset, a stabilization of relationships. And, and uh, it was only seven months ago I was in China where we were talking about sectoral trade agreements between Canada and China. And so it it's not impossible around. that that channel can be changed again uh, uh, quickly. But our fate is very much tied to the actions of the United States. They asked for this. We're honoring the extradition request. We need their help to get us out of the situation, particularly for the two Michaels that you spoke about. Jean Chrétien, former prime minister, had suggested perhaps Meng Wanzhou should simply be released, former CFO of Huawei. Is that something that the Canadian business community would be behind? No. Um, you know, we'll leave the politics to the politicians. We'll leave the judiciary to the, to the judicial thing. We, we believe in the rule of law. We believe that, that, that uh, political relationships should should. Um, uh, get to a place where we can talk to each other. I think what's unfortunate about where we are right now is, is that it's almost like everybody's frozen out. No one's talking to anybody. And in business, we think talking to each other is a good way of, of finding a way forward. But it's also important to have a strategy. What you're talking about and what's in the press is largely tactics. I'd like to understand what is the strategy to normalize relationships uh, with China. Uh, we can't have a trade diversification policy away from the United States if we believe that it's going to exclude China. We need to get back to a better place. And that means don't provoke. That means, uh, you know, uh, be shrewd, be strategic in how you, how you manage the situation. And yes, it does mean calling on your ally in the United States to say, look, we're doing this for you. We need your help. So please don't, you know, think that once you have your trade deal that you can somehow uh, push this under the carpet. We need your help in this area. And our lives are very much intertwined. The lives of these two Michaels are very much intertwined with what's going on between U.S. and, and, uh, and China. And so we need to assert ourselves in that conversation. We just have a few months left, but I want to talk to you about an op-ed that you published last week on Bill C-69. Uh, the government has rejected a large number of the amendments proposed by Conservatives. You're not the oil industry, but you're saying this raises serious concerns about the oil industry's ability to survive in Canada. Yeah, now look, the Business Council represents a diverse uh, sectoral base in the country from coast to coast. There are members of ours that are pleased with some of the changes that were made from the mining industry and others. 
but, uh, but I also represent members who are in the oil and gas industry and in the pipeline industry. And what I hear from them, and I'm only relaying what I'm hearing from them, is the, the bill as it's currently constituted will not result in the investment that's necessary to build the infrastructure because the predictability, the certainty, the confidence that one needs in the regulatory regime is not going to be there. And I don't put this just at the feet of this government. Successive governments have politicized infrastructure. We should not have done that. We should have left well enough alone and trusted our regulatory system and empowered them to get to the right answer. And I firmly believe the vast majority of Canadians, a so-called silent majority, agree with this position, that we do need the infrastructure and we do it better than anywhere else in the world and we should be able to sell our resources. Goldie Hyder, thank you for joining us. Great to be here, Mercedes. Thank you. 90% of Canadians have fallen for fake news. That's according to a new poll for Canada's Centre for International Governance and Innovation. And most of that fake news is found on Facebook. So who is behind this misinformation and why do we fall for it? Sasha Havlicek is the CEO of a British think tank that studies online hate and disinformation. I sat down with her last week. Here's that conversation. Sasha, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you for having me. A poll out this week that has a lot of Canadians talking, saying 90% of Canadians have fallen for fake news, which was defined as partially or wholly fake information. A lot of that coming through Facebook. Does that statistic surprise you? And we haven't even got to deep fake, not, not yet, which is the technology that will really get us stomped on fake news. It doesn't entirely surprise me. Um, news and information that's shared within peer groups tends to be more impactful. We tend to believe it a little bit more. Um, it's worrying, but what we see in relation to misinformation today is that the picture is more complex than that because it isn't just about false information or indeed false means of distributing that information through obvious botnets. What we've seen now across European elections and across the information uh, warfare terrain is a much more nuanced way in which fakery is happening. Who are the people that are behind this fake news and this disinformation and why are they doing it? Well, this is the thing, you know, when everybody's been looking at this really since 2016 and everybody's been asking really the big question about Kremlin interference. Now, there is that happening, but what we're seeing is a much more complex set of actors. We're seeing transnational non-state actors very active here. Uh, the international alt-right has been as much of a player, I would say, as Kremlin sources across Europe, across a whole range of elections of late. Uh, and we see an investment in long-range campaigns around wedge issues. Why is it that social media companies aren't doing more to counter this? Is it, is it beyond their control? Is it not in their interest? What's the motivation? So I think that there have been efforts by the companies to look at this sort of range of harms, if you like, from uh, violent uh, extremism through hate speech, through the misinformation space. Most of the approach that's been seen now to date, you know, governments have been basically looking at this from a content moderation perspective. And they've been saying to the companies, you need to do more to moderate or to remove uh, egregious and problematic content. And while there is content that definitely needs to be removed and it's illegal, so there's a lot of uh, hate speech that's illegal, uh, there's harassment that's illegal, there's defamation that's illegal, we need to do more to apply existing laws online more effectively. That isn't happening very well right now. Um, there's a whole lot, of course, that isn't, uh, that that's falls into the sort of gray area of uh, legal but problematic content. 
this is where we need a new tack, we need a new approach. We need to be looking at this from the perspective of the technological architecture of these platforms that essentially tilts in favor of uh, extremist messaging and polarization. These are not entirely neutral environments. I think we have a tendency to imagine that they are. But actually the algorithmic biases that we see, essentially because the algorithms were set up to uh, keep your attention as long as possible, to be able to, you know, this attention economy uh, that's at the heart of the business model of these companies, uh, ends up pushing us into ever slightly more uh, extreme context and polarizing these environments. And it's that that we really need uh, to address because it's in those iterative spaces where we're getting closed without us really knowing, sort of inorganically, um, in environments that shape our worldview that I think the damage really gets done. Well, it's so interesting because when you log into Facebook, I assume that I'm looking at the same thing as you're looking at, but in fact it could be two very polar, very different views being presented. Well, that's right. I mean, so your data is being used uh, essentially to, uh, to profile you uh, with whatever is of interest to you. And of course that's done for commercial purposes, but it can equally be done for social, political purposes. And we see, of course, uh, malign actors very adeptly looking at ways in which to micro-target constituencies um, to change their opinions, to, to, to draw them into their own groups, uh, and to radicalize. So how do you deal with that? Is it more for governments to do? Is it more social media education campaigns so that people can learn to spot disinformation and spot fake news? How do you go about countering something that has become so ingrained in something that's so much a part of our lives in social media? I think you need a three-pronged approach to this. Uh, you need to see policy coming into play. And I do believe that regulation is absolutely necessary. The self-regulatory approach with the companies, I don't think uh, is going to work. And that regulation needs to focus beyond content moderation on that uh, architecture that I just talked about, the imbalances that we see online um, that tilt in favor of extremism. The second piece is really competition. Uh, we need to provide uh, open data for civic uh, actors to compete effectively for share of mind online uh, in order to compete effectively with these extreme ideas. And we, we don't do that very effectively today. Uh, civil society groups tend not to have the tools, they tend not to have access to the data at scale. Uh, it's in a way, I think, something that both government and the companies could come around together to invest in that kind of machinery uh, to upskill and upscale the civic response. And then thirdly, there is an investment that needs to be made in education. And when we talk about education, sort of digital citizenship education, it shouldn't just be for kids. This should be for everybody. Uh, but we also need to upskill our whole system. If we want law to apply effectively in the online uh, world, we need to be equipping law enforcement, we need to be equipping courts, we need to be equipping the entire system uh, to respond to some of those threats in real time with the technological wherewithal to do it. There's been a rise in online hate, in alt-right groups, in nationalistic postings, and, and more politicians being elected that way too. How do you deal with the grievances that are driving that, and at the same time the propaganda that's being put online to feed those grievances? Where is that cycle and how do you break mm. it? So our world isn't lived entirely online. I think there are offline uh, solutions to some of that that are absolutely required. We work a lot, for instance, with cities. I think hyper-local responses are absolutely needed, uh, both from a communications and from a policy standpoint. Again, data, we need the data um, 
to be able to work at a very strategic level on understanding both grievances and um, the needs of local communities. More needs to be done to address those uh, types of issues in, in hyper-local context, and I think we can alleviate a lot of those problems. But I do think, again, we, um, we can do a huge amount more to, um, to undermine the, the sort of strategic um, efforts of uh, international alt-right uh, groups. And they, are, they have become vastly more strategic over the last three years. They're connecting over a fairly um, wide ideological spectrum from the old racialist um, elements of the movement into the new culturalist elements of the movement. And, and they are operationalizing their, uh, around very specific political objectives. So they are doing sort of flash mob campaigning uh, in order to achieve those political objectives. And they've networked um, and they have, of course, they are very technologically savvy. So we need at the very least to be able to identify and expose these sorts of malign uh, information operations. People need to be aware of when they are being manipulated. Uh, we need a much better job being done by the internet companies to deal with this far right problem. There's been a lot of attention on Islamist extremism. Uh, much less on uh, the far right, and they, they need to do more to engage uh, with experts who understand the nuance of the type of content that's being put out by these groups um, and how it's reaching specific constituencies. Um, so there's much, much more that can be done to, to, um, to deal with this strategic campaigning that we see. What about some of the immediacy that the technology allows? And I think of the terrible attack in New Zealand in March. Uh, this is somebody who had a GoPro attached to himself, was live broadcasting his attack. It was tweeting out. It was going on Facebook. To be able to call and sort through the information is one thing, but how much of a challenge is it to deal with something like that and, and the propaganda value that that holds when you can now reach out to hundreds of thousands of people around the world in an instant? Well, it's, it's a huge potential, of course. And uh, one of the things I would say is that that attack gave us an insight into the wider ecosystem um, of these extremist groups. Uh, the manifesto, the so-called manifesto that the attacker put out was put out on an alt-tech platform. So you see uh, a number of uh, platforms either being co-opted or being set up and created for the purposes of obviating some of the restrictions that we've seen uh, on the mainstream platforms, on Facebook, on Twitter, on, you know, on YouTube. Uh, and, and so you have this entire ecosystem now of alternative uh, platforms that enable sort of rabid engagement and communications in sort of nether regions of the internet where a lot of the plotting and planning uh, and deployment of information operations happens. And, and then they get, of course, uh, plotted and then deployed across mainstream in order to be able to reach wider audiences. But we have to take into account that wider ecosystem. To some extent, that can give us uh, an insight, a kind of early warning mechanism. Um, there is no reason that we shouldn't be watching those spaces. Uh, and certainly, my organization does a lot of work sitting across those sort of closed, sometimes encrypted channels to understand what is being um, planned by these groups. Uh, but there is no excuse then for these major platforms not to be abreast of some of those developments. Uh, there needs to be a better early warning system. And then there needs to be a much better crisis response um, uh, system in place so that governments and the tech companies, when an attack like this happens, are able to respond in, in much uh, in, in, you know, in a much tighter time frame. 
one of the problems, of course, you said this is, of course, a massive uh, propaganda win. It, absolutely. We see in the aftermath, all of our data shows that uh, in the aftermath of attacks, we see this massive spike in online hate and even in, 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 in search for uh, extremist groups and content. And so we need to be able to mitigate some of the, uh, the fallout from these attacks in a, in, a, in a more structured and in a more coordinated way. Psychologically, what is it about disinformation that makes it attractive to people? Because you will see, and we've all seen it, individuals who you know who are good people, they're rational people, they're intelligent people, and yet they will repost some of this news that clearly is from a fake website or hasn't been checked out. What is it that draws us towards that? Well, often, it, you know, it's, it's you know, wireism. <laughs> um, it's titillating uh, content. I mean, people are drawn, uh, you know, to, to, to titillating content. Um, but often it comes from, again, you, you know, your, your friends, your family, uh, people that you know. And so you may not question it in um, as rigorous a way as you might, uh, uh, as you might uh, verify other types of, of content. But I think often it's emotional content that gets us. And so it, it really taps into anxieties, into um, anger, in, into a whole range of feelings that people have about certain issues of so subliminal uh, messaging that's become kind of, uh, you know, the meta-narrative across certain issues. I'd say, you know, we've seen a 10-year investment in, you know, by extreme movements into the cultural underpinnings um, of specific policy uh, and political positions. And it's important to understand that because it does influence an entire uh, kind of information ecosystem. Uh, and so this kind of messaging, I think, taps into something quite visceral, um, visceral fears, uh, visceral feelings, uh, and, and can be very effective as a result. And much of what we see to counter that is uh, evidence-based, factual myth-busting. And it tends not to work. Why not? Because you, you, you can't beat the emotional argument with a fact. You need to engage emotionally with people around the fears um, uh, that they have. And, and uh, I think, again, there's a communications challenge for the progressive sector writ large. And many of our progressive internationalist projects, I think, f fail as a result of our inability to find more compelling ways uh, to communicate them that actually um, resonate with, with people emotionally. We're in an election year. What should Canadians be prepared for in this election? And what's the possible fallout and consequences of this kind of disinformation being fed into the campaigns? I think your government uh, has done quite a lot already to try and get Canadian society um, prepared for the potential of misinformation. One thing is to be uh, aware of the fact that this is a target. So I think you know, one has to be prepared for the fact that there is a, a whole plethora of actors that will be interested to sow uh, the seeds of polarization, um, potentially hate, um, but also sort of uh, tilt um, the system in perhaps favor of one or another party. Uh, it's not just foreign state actors. It is a combination of non-state transnational actors working often with domestic extreme actors we've seen in the European context that bleed into uh, populist party actors. And one of the challenges is to distinguish 
between those and be able to develop a response. I, I think we need to be watching much more closely the extent to which the social media companies' commitments around, for instance, political ads transparency um, is being delivered on. There have been some problems with the system set up in the lead up to the European parliamentary elections in terms of that ads transparency commitment. The commitment is very much appreciated, um, but the execution of that has been problematic. That really needs to be scrutinized. Um, and I think that there needs to be much more data, again, available to the wider public that enables uh, the identification and exposure of malign operations. And by that, I mean information operations that are uh, intentionally deceptive you know, covert, deceptive, distortive, or indeed uh, illegal tactics. Um, I don't think we do enough to expose illegal activity online, which is again, harassment. We've seen a lot of targeted harassment of political opponents, um, amplified often inorganically by networked operations uh, across the European parliamentary elections. Uh, now we see a, a ton of illegal hate speech that needs to be challenged. That needs to be challenged in a way uh, so that we get the companies to respond swiftly. When it is illegal content, it does need to come down. Um, defamation. Um, and then I think we need to be aware of one of the tactics that perhaps is less visible, which is really the sowing of a sense of mistrust in political uh, processes, in democratic processes uh, themselves, and in democratic institutions, including media. Um, and there has been a sort of sustained campaign around undermining faith in the electoral process itself. And in part, that is um, really in order to uh, get people confused about whether there's any point in participating in the, in the political process. And, and uh, I think one of the tactics we need to be alive to is, is this tactic of trying to get people simply not to come out and bother to vote. We had a group, the LFS, the Canadian version of it, on Facebook here. There was death threats against the Prime Minister on there, people wishing for his death. Facebook shut down the accounts in some cases, but not the group. Do you think in cases like that, Facebook and other social media organizations should be taking a, a tougher stance, or, or does it just go somewhere else then? Well, it is a big challenge, this. Of course, it often does go somewhere else, and we have seen the migration uh, off of the mainstream platforms onto, as I said, this alt tech uh, environment um, of many actors that have now been sort of you know, deplatformed. Um, of course, they're able in many senses to reach fewer people, but they do mobilize a harder core constituency there. Uh, more analysis, more research needs to be done on the impact of these kinds of measures. Um, I think that we need to be quite careful about shutting down followerships. <laughs> Of, uh, of specific, uh, even problematic uh, influencers. I think it's one thing uh, potentially to deplatform a major influencer that has you know, an absolutely evident, you know, malign, transgressive impact. It's another thing to be shutting down the followerships. I think you want to be asking yourself, how do we engage these people? We've trialed a whole range of interventions uh, at the Institute um, that are really about how we engage those constituencies that are being uh, drawn into these kinds of movements. Uh, and there are ways in which to talk to people. Um, we shouldn't be shy to, to reach out and start those hard conversations. Uh, and, and, and I think that we do a little bit too little of that, a little bit too much of shutting people down. We have seen in the context of really extreme groups that um, 
where people have had their accounts removed, for instance, they become sometimes even more prolific and even more influential in their second or third online iterations. Um, you sort of, you know, it's a kind of online martyrdom. It makes them a little cooler. And, and we don't want to be doing that. Sasha, thank you so much. Thank you. <laughs> Thanks for listening. You can follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. And please be sure to check us out online at thewestblock.ca. I'm Mercedes Stevenson for The West Block.